Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Hosting duties are nothing new for Ben Gleed. He's been doing that since he was a teenager, rubbing elbows with Hollywood stars and their children at Beverly Hills High School. Cleve's college talk show became a national sensation thanks to the National Lampoon, eventually scoring him a TV pilot on Fox produced by Lauren Michaels. After appearing hundreds of times on panels with Chelsea Lately and the Today Show with Kathy Lee and Hoda, Gleeb has hosted the Game Show Network's Idiot Test for the past two years. You've also heard his voice on the big screen in the animated hit Ice Age Continental Drift, as well as hosting his own podcast Last Week on Earth. His first stand-up comedy special, Neurotic Gangster, premiered this summer on Showtime, and Gleeb sat down with me during Montreal's Just for Last Festival to talk about his journey. So let's get to it! We have a lot of bees are coming coming at us here. Yeah, what's the, what's the uh, what's Jeez. the most dangerous scenario you you performed under? I mean, right now having two bees flying at us, I have to kick away while doing a podcast. Are you allergic to bees? I don't think so. But does anybody like getting stung by a bee? No. And no, I they feel don't. like I get pretty gr- you know, like not the best reactions to them. I'm maybe mildly allergic. I doubt that's true, but I just, you know, I don't want to get bitten by them. Right. Bees normally are a lot chiller these days on account of the fact that the entire species is dying. But um, these ones seem a little aggressive <laughs> in particular. <laughs> but, you know, that that's what I do. I'm a bee talk guy. You know, I just, I go on podcasts, talk about the demise of the bees and how I right. can try to save them. And I'm glad that you're sharing your airwaves with me for that reason. You know, something I noticed about your new Showtime special, A Neurotic Gangster. Yeah. Is that it shares some similarities with your uh, day job slash night job as a game show host uh-huh. of Idiot Test on In what way? A lot of your jokes seem to be constructed like puzzles that you like to like take take the pieces apart and then put them back together. I love that. Thank you very much. Was it, is that a conscious? It's a conscious thing for you when you're writing a joke to to think of it like a puzzle. Sort. I don't think of it like a puzzle. No, it's the first time that. Anybody's phrased it that way, but I do. Um, I've been been aware for a long time that what I do on on Idiot Test is create these brain puzzles that take people's brain and put them on display, and and then when I explain what they did wrong in a test, is I deconstruct their logic and right. I just explain what's wrong with their logic. And I'm very aware that's also what my stand-up style largely is: is I'll take an issue or a topic and I try to just ex- deconstruct it and explain where either an individual person or society's logic just goes wrong or went wrong uh, in arriving at that stupid place that we're at. <laughs> so I guess in that way, yeah, it's true. Um, and I'm you know, definitely a fan of backloading punchlines, and that's sort of how puzzles work. You have to keep your surprise for as close to the very end right. as possible. Um, other kind of insects? What is that? A mosquito? Yeah. I don't think it has Zika. I don't think it's gotten this far yet. God. We're up in Montreal for Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. Yeah, but Zika's um, hit the U.S. It's in Rio. I mean, there must be some Zika in yeah. Canada. I'm what? just hoping that maybe Zika does get here just to make the podcast very dramatic. <laughs> you know? Did you have any, uh, any... Remember the podcast when Glebe got Zika virus? Did you have any fears when you initially started stand-up comedy? Fears as to... 
fears about going on stage, fears of crowd, fears of success or failure? I didn't have really fears of success or failure. I've always been pretty confident. I definitely, in my life, had huge fears of crowds. Not when I started stand-up, but I grew up with a severe speech problem. I've talked about a few times before, um, like a stutter and also a disfluency beyond that, where I couldn't even make sounds come out of my vocal cords for a lot of my life. And so I used to be deathly afraid of speaking in front of even a, a... class of 20 people or a discussion group in college of 12 people I have to tell teachers not to call on me ever unless I raise my hand and I would just completely lock up and I would be called on so to that end I was hugely afraid to talk just in general which is very fun that I've overcome it and now you know get on a stage in front of 12,000 people on on occasion or on a TV studio in front of millions right. I love it but um, all those fears are long gone I don't know if that's a dichotomy or a paradox, but, I mean, you were telling me that you've, you've wanted to have a kind of public speaking or television career since you were mm-hmm. six or seven. So how did, how did you, how did you juxtapose those two ideas? You want to be on TV in front of people, and yet you had this fear of public speaking. Yeah, I mean, it was just a shitty juxtaposition. It was, it was a cruel irony, really, because I always knew that I had these comedic thoughts in my head, and... I could make people laugh when I could talk and when I was able to get my thoughts out. And and I just thought it was so weird that I had all these things I wanted to say to make people laugh and I just couldn't say them. But So it was frustrating for sure and at times it was, it was you know, sad and scary. But, but more so, more than anything, I always knew I would overcome it. I knew it was a matter of time until I figured it out. I never felt like this was some lifelong prison sentence or anything. I, I just knew it was a phase I had to get past. The phase lasted a long time. It lasted from, you know, five or six until really 22 years old on and off. What happened at 22? I don't know. It was weird. I just graduated. I was chosen to speak at my college graduation. And in that, what up did, until a week before that speech, I still would have a speech problem on and off. And then that speech hit. I was just like Zen came over me, set up in front of 7,000 people at my graduation from UC San Diego. And... It was just flawless delivery, and I didn't really have a speech problem ever again. What did you do to get chosen for that? Um, you had to actually try out. You had to try out, so at the audition I was fine, too, somehow. Um, there were, it was weird. Like My speech problem had developed to a point where like in, in, mo- in, pl- in environments where I was confident, I could speak flawlessly, and then in environments if I was at all nervous or felt like I was being judged or didn't feel like I fit in well, I would speak very horribly. So I guess in at at my college at UCSD, I'd already had this talk show for a few years and became right. I wanted to ask you about that. So I already I was in a very much of a comfort zone there. Was was a talk show the first kind of public speaking experience you had that that, that proved comfortable for you? Um, I guess sort of. I guess sort of. I mean, I would have my speech problem during episodes of my talk show, so it wasn't even always comfortable. Even all the way through my last one, there were stammery, weird moments. My last one in in college, I mean, before I graduated. Jesus, there's like four to seven bees now that are aggressively <laughs> circling us. I think we're I think we're sitting at a table that had some spilled drinks. Yeah, I see sticky spills on it, and that's attracting. What if I push the bees? this away, I'm going to push yeah. this whole thing away and unbee us a little bit. Yeah. There we go. Um, it's very unbecoming. That's right. Exactly right. 
death becomes her. That's a warning, you insects. Um, you know, it's so weird because usually in show business, it's uh, vultures who circle. That's very true. Instead There's some of those bees. around here. There's some of those. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I think the first place I really became comfortable, like fully comfortable, really strangely, was this, the stand-up stage. Like I did a couple of gigs in college that were just great. Were just kind of like, as far as at least speaking style, pretty flawless. And um, and then I think it came a little bit later with talk shows because you could con- control stand-up a little bit more. You're not, you know, there's not another right. person to contend with. So this talk, only a huge audience. This talk show in college, it was televised. It was, yeah. How did you convince people? to give you a talk show in college when you were still had actual speaking problems. Well, well luckily there's a very low bar for college television programming. Um, and um, I just always wanted to do it. I got involved with the TV station fall quarter freshman year and this buddy of mine and there was just again like my speech problem would come and go so, I, so this guy that was running the TV station Jeremy Cole asked me to co-host this weekly call-in show with him and didn't know I had a speech problem and on that show I was always pretty loose and didn't often have it. And then second quarter, I just asked, hey, can I do my own late-night talk show? Here's what I want to do. I've got a very elaborate plan for it. And they saw how serious I was. And it was going to be far and away the most professional production they had. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. No one thought to ask, like, can you speak? They don't really ask that question. So I remember, like, the first episode as it aired, I'm watching it in my dorm room, in my dorm common area with my sweet mates and I'm like stammering through it in such an embarrassing way and trying to deliver a news joke and hit a block and touch my eye to release the block and mm-hmm. and but yeah I would still get laughs on on the jokes they weren't laughing at me they would I would find a way to adjust the timing in the moment to still get a laugh and it um it worked and so that n- knowledge that I could still get a laugh even if I had a speech problem is what um made me start to I think evaporate the problem because I knew that even if a problem if a block hit I could get around it so it made the stakes less about speaking perfectly right there was no there's suddenly no worst case scenario exactly and that's I think as long big, as you were looking for a laugh exactly <laughs> yeah when I'm trying to be you're trying to be funny and not political diatribe laugh at you that's not ideal laugh but, with you but I um uh you know and I think that's a big part of what explains my, you know, pretty steely demeanor on stage, you know, other comics even ask me sometimes, like, you've always been so confident on stage, like, nothing phases you, and like, you know, I do a ton of crowd work, and improvise a lot of my acts in the moment, and it's because I have so, I have a lifetime, you know, that the 10,000 hours Malcolm Gladwell says mm-hmm. to become an expert at something, I have much more than that number of hours of embarrassing moment speaking in front of people. Right. And also hitting blocks and needing to think of another thing to say that I could say and taking a, a left turn or a right turn at a split second notice that I think perhaps made my brain work faster, like just trained my synapses to fire in different, quicker ways. Right. That's, that's my theory, at least. I don't have any scientific research to back that up. So by the time you started showing up on the panels for Chelsea Lately, right. I mean, Chelsea Handler loved to haze you yeah. every time you were on. So by that point, you must have been so used to oh yeah, being embarrassed or feeling embarrassed that she couldn't take you down. That's so true, too. Yeah, I, it's almost like every part of your life prepares you for the things that you're going to encounter because she's one of the harshest critics. She's one of the <laughs> harshest, you know, 
attackers or roasters out there, mm-hmm. and it would it did phase a lot of people. But I just rolled right off my back. I just was so used to being made fun of for my speech problem and for other things that I just was able to handle it in hopefully an affable or charming way that made audiences like it. And she didn't used to make fun of me for the first three years of the show. She never once made a joke my my way. Um, and I was just on every four to five weeks and was just one of the regulars telling jokes. Mm-hmm. And in one episode, for whatever reason, I can't forget, I can't remember what sparked it, she made fun of me about something and I reacted in some really funny way that made the audience laugh. And she came up like twice that episode and I texted her after the show and I was like, I had so much fun today. And I think she liked that I wasn't phased by it. Right. And so she texted back, she's like, you're always welcome on my show. And... She was totally true to that word. You know, I was on for the next, for the whole, you know, seven-year run of the show. And mm-hmm. once she started use, realizing that she enjoyed making fun of me and <laughs> I was one of her favorite targets, I became asked on the show a lot more frequently every three to four weeks for the whole final run of the show. And, you know, by the end of it, I was on, like, three of the last eight episodes of the show. And Did you, uh, I know a lot of times she liked to poke fun at your fashion. Mm-hmm. Did you Did you dress differently knowing you were going to be on? Uh, did, for you, a, did you lean into that? For a minute, I did. I started <laughs> just completely addressing what I thought was fun, and I remember like season three or something. But that was one of the first things she made fun of. I think was my outfits. I was wearing like plaid on plaid, like a right. plaid tie and a plaid short sleeve <laughs> shirt, and I literally thought that was just a good thing to wear. If it's TV, be a little quirky. I always like colorful things. And right. She just hammered me for it, and then I would. Then I leaned into it for a minute because you know, I. Intuited Cheryl Sandberg's book long before she wrote it, <laughs> and um, and I did just for like the rest of that season. Um, but I made sure when, when it came back for the next season, I went away from that and started dressing better and wearing nice outfits because I didn't ever want to become a, a caricature of myself, you know. Right. So getting back to college graduation, so you try out, you get selected. How many speakers? We had four. Okay, four students four. spoke. So one of them was like the valedictorian, and then yeah, I'm sure student body president or uh, then, no, uh, no, I think our school just chose based on auditions. Oh, okay, so I'm sure one of them was a really good student, but so I was not that one. So did you write a uh, full on humorous speech or what? The speech what was, your was angle? a great mixture. I have a videotape of it somewhere. It's it definitely had a lot of humor in it. It opened with a joke that I delivered a little. A little aggressively, and after that, the rest of the joke, I was, the rest of the speech, I was very happy with my delivery. But um, yeah, it had a lot of funny stuff in it, and it had a lot of serious stuff in it, and some inspiring stuff. It ended with like a really, with a, with something I'd actually written into a script for a short film in college. And then when I was chosen, to, I wanted to audition to write a speech. I um, put that dialogue that I originally had God, this God character, saying mm-hmm. to to the character in the script put that in about the word sometimes something I still believe this day is one of the beauties of life is like everybody always wants assurances and wants to know that life's gonna gonna work out how they want exactly and if you could control life and things happened always or never there'd be no fun to life the whole beauty of life is that things happen sometimes Mm. and it was that idea about all the great things aren't gonna always happen the fact that you don't know is what makes it cool. No, those are good words to live by. Uh, had you done stand-up before graduation? Yeah, so I, d- I did it a couple of times. The okay. first set ever in was in L.A. at the L.A. Cabaret in the summer of 97, actually. So how'd you find that? Fine. It was fine. No, how'd it? you find it? Like, literally, how'd you figure out that there was a gig there? Oh, um, I don't know. I just 
think I searched on the internet and for open mics in okay. Los Angeles, and I found one, and you had to go pay five bucks, and you got like three minutes, I think, mm. or five minutes in Daily Cabaret, and it was just a dark room of only comics. There's like eight people in the crowd. I have the audio tape of it I just found recently somewhere of that first set, and I bombed that set pretty badly. Um, wrote a lot of it that day. I got on stage, and it was just a blinding light, and rarely do you find that in clubs, but sometimes you get a light that's so strong you just can't even see the front row. And so... I couldn't really talk to anybody, and I felt like I was talking empty. And it's just comics looking at their own notes, not listening, and that said, did not go well. Were there any comics there who are still, who are working professionals now? That day, I didn't. I didn't know anybody okay. there, but definitely people that I in my first year was hitting open mics and bringer rooms with how, are still around. How long after that first open mic at the cabaret that you bombed? How long did it take for you to get on a second time? Um, it. Did you bounce right back? It like was a while only or? because I had just wanted to do it that once. It was like towards the end of summer and I had to go back to school. But I wasn't afraid of it from that. I just, I mean, in my talk show I was doing monologues, which right. was very similar to stand-up. But, the, and then I but there's not a some, real audience for that. We had I mean, little live audience. I had little audiences. Okay. It was a talk show. I had not huge ones, but in our studio episodes, like 15, 20 people. And okay. Then for our live episodes, which was bigger than open mic, mm-hmm. and then for our live episodes... My senior year of college, the fourth annual live Glebe show was in front of 3,000 students in the Price Center Plaza. Carmen Electra was my guest. Marines brought me into the show on a tank. I had a torch. I ran. It was like a huge production, a two-hour live show that I wrote and directed. And, and that was while you were still in college? While I was still in college. Oh, no wonder you got picked for college for graduation speaker. Yeah, no, I was I pretty mean, well known. I mean, you do a show. Like, yeah. Yeah, it was a... I was, you do a show zero. for 3,000 kids with Carmen Electra as a guest. Yeah. And you're still a student. Yeah. I was definitely pretty well known on campus. No wonder you passed your audition. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It was also a very good speech, Sean. I don't know what you're trying to take away from me here, but it was a great speech. Well, I'm always curious as to that first time you, you're you talking to, to whether it's a student body or a comedy club crowd, that first time where you get laughs and you realize, oh, this is... this is going to be my life now. Well, that first time that I knew... I had that euphoria was actually senior year of high school. I was senior class vice president. Okay. And I started a radio show at the end of high school called The Glebe Show. And I had my speech problem in full swing at that time. So radio was perfect because they didn't see your face. I'd have funny friends of mine co-host mm-hmm. with me. And when I would hit a block, they would um, they would chime in. They would jump in. And I would be like contorting my face in the studio. But nobody would know. And my friends would jump in. You could still hear it. But And then I was, I was senior class vice president. And I was asked to host a senior breakfast at the Friars Club. I went to Beverly Hills High School, so it was at the Friars Club in Beverly Hills, actually, and um, in the Milton Borough Room. Hmm. And we rehearsed the day before in the Milton Borough Room, and it was just our our administrator and Milton Borough was sitting in the back corner of the booth with, like, a adding machine and tea and doing his taxes or whatever, and he had, like, a telephone there on the booth. <laughs> and so I'm on stage, and I started as an impressionist, so I was doing all these old impressions. Mm-hmm. Any old-school impression I thought would impress Milton Borough, I'm doing, like... You know, I'm trying to sing like Dean Martin, and I'm doing Neil Diamond, and I'm doing Johnny Carson and Jimmy Stewart and all this mm-hmm. shit. And all of a sudden, Milton Berle, I see him perk up, and then he calls my supervisor over, mm-hmm. and they talk for a minute, and she comes back with like a, with like an excited look on her face, and she goes, Ben, I'm like, what? I think I'm being discovered by Milton Berle. <laughs> and he goes, and uh, she goes, Ben, Milton Berle wants to know if you keep it down. <laughs> He's trying to do his taxes back then. <laughs> So that did not work great, but um, well, at least at least it would keep it down and not. Could you please stop? Please stop. Yeah, he just wanted to not hear me. He didn't. 
want others to be deprived. Yeah. And that's what I knew. No, but um, <laughs> the fact that he didn't want to crush my dreams. Uh, the, the next he just day, wanted to tamper them. Exactly. And the next day, I went and hosted with my friend Zach Friedman, the senior class tea, senior class tea and breakfast, you know, with, they announced all the superlatives and who won all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And we were just improvising for an hour, and we were just crushing this crowd. Like, it was just the most euphoric. I was just completely free on stage and making everybody laugh, and I'm like, that's what I, what I want to do. I just knew it. I knew it long before that, but that was like first evidence. Were there, were there, uh, when you were going to Beverly Hills High, were there a lot of child actors in your class? For sure. A rock concert is now launched, but uh, (laughs) these are directional. Yeah, these directional mics. We're we're fine. Um, It could really be a little sample of the (laughs) ambiance. It's a a nice ambiance. Montreal! Ambiance background. It is. Um, It it lets you know we're at a festival. That's exactly right. What was the question you asked me? I don't remember. Um, uh, child actors. Oh that yeah, you went to school with. There were some. There were some. Not tons, but there were. Some. I mean, a lot of famous people went to my high school, but not that many were there when I was there. Alicia, right. uh, Alicia Summerstone, Angelina Jolie was there. I think her senior year was my freshman year. Okay. She was in like the troubled girl school <laughs> attachment to the school, and I remember like I would yeah, school would end and you'd see snakeskin boots sticking out of an SUV there to pick up a kid, and it's Rod Stewart waiting to pick up his kid or. Jermaine Jackson Jr. was on the football team with us, and how, how much how much does that uh, influence your own desire as a teenager to go into show business? I don't think it created any more desire. I think it just made it seem more accessible. I think I just realized so early that like these people are are just normal people, and oftentimes right. they're subnormal, <laughs> and so there's no reason why I can't do it. But I never, you know, saw anybody particularly famous. I never knew anybody particularly famous growing up, so it's not like... You just had, like, weird brushes with celebrity. Like, Neil Diamond, who I loved growing up, is the only young kid that loves Neil Diamond. His son was on my Little League team when I was 13, and one day Neil came to our practice mm-hmm. and jogged with us. And we're on the Diamond jogging with Neil Diamond, and I literally jogged right up alongside him, and I'm just looking at him like a like a puppy dog in love with his owner and his medallion is bouncing on his chest in the wind as he jogs and he mm-hmm. looks down at me and he didn't say it but you could tell the thought in his head was hello kid <laughs> and it just felt amazing but you know I don't think that run in- inspired me to go, in- okay. go into show business but the, f- the fact that I mean you had you started this successful talk show in college that made you like popular mm-hmm. and then your your show gets picked up by National Lampoon yes and then by Lorne Michaels. Yes, that's true. Were you, were you doing stand-up throughout that process, or were you just focused on making the the Glebe show? No, I totally hit. was. I, I was always so yeah, like like you said, that like my talk show calls the Glebe show. I sold it to National Lampoon Network and did it for three seasons, and then we um, it had shifted away from being a talk show in its third season into a single camera comedy about my life. Still, that would tangent into hidden camera bits and mound street pieces and and um, sketches. Uh, something that I always wanted to do. That Ben Stiller, one of my comedy heroes, um, said that he said that it couldn't be done. And the audio commentary for the Ben Stiller show, he said that he always wanted to wrap all those segments they did around a, a sitcom narrative. And he said it couldn't be done. And we figured out a way to do it. And it's still a viable format. That if you're listening, industry, I would <laughs> love to still bring it to you. But um, and then. So that third season format, we partnered with Lauren Michaels and Broadway Video, and um, I was doing stand-up the whole time. Stand-up's my first love. It's, you know, George Carlin's the reason that I'm a stand-up comedian. He, his voice, and he, too, you know, you said my stand-up's very logic-based, so was his, I think. His 
the, the way he's I got learned. a lot of wordplay and a lot of wordplay and also lyrical. Like, there's a lyrical aspect to his. Oh yeah, he would write his comedy, comedy like a like an like an orchestral arrangement for sure and do things with his voice. Yeah. But the way he would just like disseminate a topic and mm-hmm. like like untangle the logical flaws with what society's doing wrong in a certain thing is very much the way I see comedy and try to do it as well. Um, so I was doing it all, all along. Like I remember National Lampoon bought my talk show and like a month in. I was I'd already been hosting for a year before that talk show College Night at the Laugh Factory, which eventually became Comedy Juice, moved to the Improv, and is now this big brand that's you know across the country that I created with my best friend Scott Richardson. But um, I was already performing weekly at that show, and so the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn asked me to perform a week after my 25th birthday, just a month or so after I started doing the show for Lampoon. So all the National Lampoon executives were in the green room at CBS. When I was gonna go on and hmm. do my stand-up TV debut at age 25, 13 years ago. <laughs> what did you think your career was gonna be like at that point? You know, I th- did I, you have a did you have dreams or visions of how it was gonna unfold? I did. I, I did. I've I've like really, you know, my other best friend Jason Nazar calls me like the the says that I'm the best he's ever met at like manifesting like the exact reality that I want. Um, and I don't know how or, or, or why I do it that way, but I've always specifically known that I wanted a talk show, and I had a talk show. And I think one day, again, I will host a late-night talk show, and that's a big goal of mine for the, the latter part of my career, uh, sit behind one of those desks. And I always wanted to be a successful stand comedian, and that's been happening more and more lately. Um, didn't anticipate the turn into a game show mm-hmm. at all. Never had a goal of being a game show host, but... As much as Carlin was the reason I'm a Sam comedian, Johnny Carson was the reason I'm a talk show host. I just always loved him. I think that was what was cut off in our first take of the beginning of this. Um, and I just thought he was the most affable, likable, charming host ever and so funny. And um, I recently, last year, Eddie Brill booked me on the Great American Comedy Festival in Norfolk, Nebraska. In, in Carson's hometown. In Carson's hometown. And... Um, on my birthday, I went to the Johnny Carson Museum there and was reminded that he started his career as a game show host. And I totally forgot that. <laughs> and then went to his family, I mean, went to his childhood home right after that. Mm-hmm. On my birthday, as I'm walking into his childhood home, I got an email from the network saying that we just got our biggest ratings ever on Idiot Test. And I walk in, it's this amazing home, this beautiful brick fireplace, and the owner of the house shows up and gave me a brick from Carson's childhood home. Oh, very nice. So it was kind of cool. And you put that brick in your house. In my ass. And built it. <laughs> I put it up my ass. And that's why I walk weird, but I always know a piece of Johnny's there with me. Yeah. Um, but when you're meeting, but when you're still in your 20s and you're meeting with Lauren Michaels and he says he wants to take your show to the next level, right. you're probably not thinking about a game show. No, I was not or, thinking about a game show back or then. Or a late but night also talk here's... show. You're thinking, oh, I could be the next big thing yeah i mean i for sure thought that i i didn't know it would go for sure but i was certainly hoping that it would be the next big comedy you know sitcom sketch thing and i'd be a you know huge comedy star right right off of that but here's the interesting thing of working with somebody as big and established as lauren michaels is he was the executive producer of 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 the gleep show for fox that we sold to fox i've never met lauren michaels <laughs> he was in new york we were in l.a I was working with joanne alfano who Runs Lifetime now, or maybe just recently left there. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Singer, and they were the hands-on guys that produced the show with me and Scott for Broadway Richardson, Video. For Broadway Video, but 
So you didn't have that moment of sitting with Lauren? No, he was on emails and things, but did not ever get to hear the, yeah, we're very excited. Wild thoughts, yes. So when that, didn't, when that eventually didn't go, was that the end of the Glebe Show dream? It was. Did you realize, oh, I guess it's not. It was, and maybe I was, like, sidetracked by it more than, like, like hit harder by that than I should have been because Fox said we could take it elsewhere as long as they got paid back for the pilot they, pay, they paid for. Um, but that would have been kind of prohibitive for any network, I felt like, to take on a project that already is risky, new format, and you have to pay Fox 50 grand or whatever it is to do it. So um, it was just such a culmination of so much of my life I'd worked towards for so long and I wanted this show so bad and it took then nine months for the deal to close and went through drafts of our script and the second we turned it in the whole comedy department of Fox was was let go like the day or two before we turned our script in and so they <laughs> cleared the slate the next day of every show in development right you're just and kind I was, of caught in the political winds stuck and and I got so disheartened by that I was just like it was like the biggest kick to my stomach like it was coming through the hardest time during that nine months working on that pilot my father was diagnosed with colon cancer and had to we had to deal with the most insane intense family experience of our life and thank god he beat it completely and is now 10 years cancer free but um so when that show was taken away i was just drained emotionally and like i'd always been somebody who sat in the driver's seat and tried to dictate and like you said you know did you see your career unfolding? I always tried to create every detail of my career and, and have it unfold exactly as I wanted it to. And when that happened, I took a piece of advice. And my mom has always said, sometimes you lead life and sometimes life leads you. And I was just a little tired of leading life for a while. And I was ready to let, to sit in the passenger seat and just let my talents and my stand up and just the things I was already immersed in take me where they will. And I stopped creating other things for a long time. And... That you, worked well too. Did you take time off from stand up as well? Never, or? never okay. have taken time off from stand up. I'm not one of those guys that needs to perform every single night. Like most comics feel like they do mm -hmm. for some reason. I feel like it's a little much. If you're always doing new stuff, that's amazing. And I respect it hugely if you're doing the same eight minutes every single night. It's just a little bit self indulgent if you ask me. But <laughs> um, so if I'm on production on a show and for a month, or when I was shooting the Real Wedding Crashers in Vegas for two months, I didn't perform once. Whereas Steve Byrne was like driving back to LA every weekend and performing every weekend and. I didn't ever feel the need to do that, and I went on stage, you know, seven weeks later for the first time and crushed an awesome set at the Bray Improv and felt like I hadn't missed a beat. But, um, but um, I never taken a, a, a chunk of time off from stand-up ever. Mm -hmm. But during that time of letting my career or letting my life lead me, um, it worked out thankfully. Like, and it taught me a little bit of Zen where I don't that, that I can always take charge of things if I want to, but I don't have to, and things will be okay. Because shortly after I decided not to create anymore, I was cast in The Real Wedding Crashers, and suddenly I'm one of the leads of an NBC primetime hour-long show. Right. And then I was cast in a movie, and then years, a couple of years later I was cast in Ice Age, one of the voices, and then yeah, that's a, Chelsea Lately. That's a nice gig. It was, a, and it was the number one animated movie ever yeah. for a long time until Frozen fucked us. You know, that's <laughs> what happens. I have let it go, okay, Ilsa? <laughs> And I was going to ask if you didn't bring it up. <laughs> um, and uh, and then Chelsea Lately became a thing that, that put me in the spotlight for a long time. And then that led to Idiot Test. And they became fans of mine at GSN and gave me my own show. But the thing that Idiot Test, um, I think before Idiot Test came along, I was for a long time just doing panels. And Kevin Smith, who you know is one of the great film icons of our time, I think, and a voice of our generation, um, 
had this amazing has this amazing podcast network called Smodcast, and I'd never met Kevin and never thought I would. And one morning I got a call to um, if I could co-host or be on the panel, basically for this pilot that Kevin Smith was shooting for his own Chelsea Lately style late night talk show. I guess one of their people dropped out like the day of or the day before. Mm-hmm. So I, of course, said yes, and I all of a sudden, with like an hour's notice, go to this TV studio, and I'm now doing a show with Seth Rogen, Kevin Smith, and Arden Marine, mm-hmm. and the four of us were on this panel mm-hmm. for, you know, multiple segments and had a great time, and Kevin and I missed the, the rap party after that because we were smoking a joint outside, and he asked me to tell him my life story. I told him a lot of what I told you now, and then everybody goes, so you're a production guy, what are you doing just being on panels like me and Chelsea and being a talk boy for us? Why don't you do your own thing again and create? And I had said to him, like, I'd been thinking more and more about getting back into leading my own life again. <laughs> and him pushing me was definitely something that helped spur me to do that once once an icon says that to you. And then he invited me on his podcast at his house. I'm there with him and Jay Muse. And then during the commercial break, he says, do you want to guest host my podcast here in my house when I'm out of town this, this Friday? I said, sure. <laughs> and I brought Scott in there with me to guest mm-hmm. host. And then at the end of the of that taping, he says to me, do you want your own show on my network? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> and so immediately I just like decided with Kevin's pushing to mm-hmm. start creating again. And doing that podcast last week on Earth, every week that I've been doing for the last five plus years, creating again, reignited that love of doing my own thing and creating my own thing. And then, it, and then Idiot Tess, I think, came into my life. And then... My stand-up went to the next level, and right. I'm creating a new show now and developing a unscripted news-type show, and I'm develop- and I'm writing a sitcom now, and I'm ready for that to get back into that driver's seat. But it's, it was so nice to know I don't have to be there. That's more of a choice. Where, where did touring with Dane Cook fit into that puzzle or that transition between leading life, life leading you, and then leading life again? It was an annoying distraction being asked to perform at sold-out arenas every night and having a rock star dream of a stand-up experience. No, it was amazing. Um, it fit in... Where did it fit in? Um, I don't know exactly. I'll put the mic closer to my mouth. I'm sorry, Sean. Um, where exactly did it fit in time-wise? It was 2010 mm-hmm. when Dane asked me to open for him So it was after tour. the Wedding Crashers It was show. after Wedding Crashers by about three years. And it was in the middle of Chelsea Lately. I was already pretty well known for Chelsea Lately. Dane um, you and I had become friends. Yet? I had not started the podcast okay, yet. So I started the podcast in like 2000, I guess, and 11 or so. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Dane just took a liking to my comedy, and you asked me to write with him, and we wrote a screenplay together, and we became very close friends at the time. And he asked me to open for him on tour. It was me, J. Chris Newberg, and Aldo Benny opening for Dane. Um, and we toured the North America on a huge tour bus right. and had this insane experience. And every night we would play to sold-out arenas, up to 12,000 people in the round. It was magical. And then we would each you know, have our own time on stage, and then Dame would invite us up to do an encore together. We'd do a musical encore together, and would most nights leave to standing ovation from an arena. We're playing NBA and NHL arenas. It was incredible experience. Um, and at, at, But at that time... It was still very much in the phase of life leading me because he just offered that to me. Right, you're, and you're a cog in his machine. Total cog in his machine. Just had to go on stage and do 15 minutes each night. And I'd signed on the ultimate example of life leading me a month or two before that, before I was offered by Dane. Yahoo Sports hired me from an audition that I got to host this web series. I think you did actually oh, yeah, a story yeah, yeah. on many yeah, years yeah. ago uh, called Behind Enemy Lines where we right. dressed as the 
football rivals of a big football town and infiltrate their fans and fuck with them and yeah, like at their tailgates and their tailgates and I would get I would get punched and alligators were attacking me and ketchup <laughs> thrown in my face and I just and it was the, it was a really cool gig to travel around but it was one of the hardest hellish gigs ever mm-hmm. and I had to miss actually five of the Yahoo uh, five of the Dane Cook tour dates because I was doing this web series where I'm getting like punched and have condiments thrown on my face and they were actually very nice at, at uh, Yahoo and let me also like they like shot me out of like half of a few episodes so that I could not miss too many of Dane's big shows mm-hmm. but it was it was it was a hard moment to have to leave like I had to miss playing the United Center in Chicago because or whatever, I think that's what it's called yeah. to go and and you know mess with fans in <laughs> Pittsburgh or something um, but it was cool to do both but it's not a gig that I would have necessarily created for myself so at some point it got exciting to be able to back in the creator seat you, you've already mentioned like some great advice that you have and that your mom gave you uh, have, have there who has been like really good into in comedy in the comedy world in terms of like mentoring you or giving you counsel and advice and uh, there have been a lot of people I haven't had many people that have like necessarily like taken me under their wing to counsel me but you just pick up little bits of, of, of wisdom over the course of your career you know when I first started I'll always remember that Bush Bradley and Bob Marley both um, when I was probably having a beer or two before some of my early shows they said don't start that habit you're gonna get you'll be crutch you won't be able to ever perform for the next 30 40 50 years of your life without alcohol so I took that note um, I used to be a little bit too worried about like stepping on people's toes at clubs or if I was hosting a show I remember one time Chappelle showed up at the college night in the Laugh Factory um, at the height of the Chappelle show mm-hmm. and um, I said to him like so you're up next man I just want to, if it's cool I just want to do two minutes real quick and I'll bring you right up and he goes do your thing man <laughs> do your thing like don't worry about it um, and that was a nice piece of zen <laughs> um, Dane one time told me to make sure you take your time with stuff you don't Oh, I know. He didn't tell me that. I take it back. He, he told me to bring your energy up if you're playing an arena. It doesn't hurt to give them a little more energy. It's a huge venue. Right. Um, but generally speaking, I don't know that I've had too many comedy mentors. I just sort of figured it out myself by. Okay. Um, I've been given great work ethic advice from Whitney Cummings that I never took to just <laughs> set alarms and make sure you're setting time recorders and getting stuff done. That's why she gets more done than me. But. <laughs> um, stuff still still just falls into its place, you know. I host an Emmy-nominated game show in the third season. I'm all right with that. Yeah, it's not too shabby. Not bad. So on the flip side, what what's the first thing you say to somebody who hasn't done comedy before but wants to and asks you for advice? What's the first thing you say to them? I tell them two things. I tell them, write down every single funny thought you have the moment it hits you. At the moment of inspiration is the perfect time when it came purely into your brain, so that's when it's best. So... Don't wait. Don't forget. Stop. Even if you're having sex or eating pizza, pause and write it down. Um, and I recommend the Evernote program. But I also tell them, don't do it if you don't have to. Like, I'm not one of the many comics that's always trying to encourage people. Oh, you, you want? You think about it comedy? You should do it. Encourage people who never thought of it. You should maybe try comedy. Hey, we don't need more competition. There's plenty of us. What's up, Jeff? B... If it's not something, it's such a weird life and a particular life and a road dog life and with life with no guarantees and you never know where your next gig is coming from, don't do it unless you have to. Someone should not push you into that. It has to be an, an, an unwavering desire you have. Otherwise, I don't think it'll ever be something you can stick to and you can really do well and organically. Right. Don't, so in other words, don't let life lead you into comedy. You, ha- you have to want to lead yourself. 
Sure, I mean, you know? life can lead you into it with like lots of signs, but yeah, you need to make that you choice. Have the desire. Yes, because it's it's not an easy gig. No one's gonna fall into stand-up comedy and all of a sudden be one of the great stand-up comedians. That could happen acting. You can fall into it accidentally and just have a raw talent. It's a lot of work in stand-up. You have to always write, always hone, always be on the road, always be building your fan base. These days you're running multiple social networks and creating some sense of your own brand, if we have any sense of that. Mm-hmm. So definitely don't do it if you think it'll be fun. It'll be fun to go up there and tell jokes with a beer in my hand. That's yeah. not really what the job is. Well, Ben, uh, thanks for fitting me into your work schedule. You are very welcome. Thank I, you for leading leading me into this podcast, <laughs> leaning in and leading it leading it right out. Thanks, Sean. You've always been cool, and I really appreciate you always uh, spreading the word about my stuff. I always thought you had a cool eye on the comedy scene, so it's it's cool to be a part of the things you do. Oh, thanks, Ben. I really appreciate that. Yeah, buddy. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.